welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Bayrou. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by Stumptown Coffee Roasters, American craft coffee pioneers who have been sourcing, roasting, and keeping cups half full since 1999. You can find out more and get their delicious, fresh coffee delivered to your doorstep at stumptowncoffee.com. So we've been hearing a lot recently about bots. These are computer programs that can chat with people through SMS or messaging apps like WhatsApp or Slack. Bots are already delivering news and doing all sorts of things, uh, ordering pizzas even. Anyone who's read science fiction knows that any kind of thing like this has a exciting and alarming capacity, in fact, to wreak havoc on their human would-be masters. And I heard um, vaguely that uh, Microsoft released a bot called Tay as sort of an experiment. I have to admit, I haven't been paying that close attention to it. Jessica, have you? Do you know what's going on with this? I know a little bit, and there's a great deal online that we can uh, direct our, our listeners to. But here's the basic situation. Tay was introduced by Microsoft and meant to sound like a teenage girl, and anybody could chat with her. And so on Twitter, a lot of people did. It's, uh, Jessica, sorry, I'm sorry. It's such, a, it's such a bad idea already, but go on. I mean, it's oh, sort it's of like, just asking for know, trouble. Yeah, yes, robot teenage a robot girl. Robot teenage like, girl. Uh, you know, right. Just open, yeah. open mouth, insert foot. Yeah, how's that robot teenage girl project going? Is that <laughs> are we ready to launch that? Yeah, it's great. Right, and and and. Was she named after Taylor Swift? I don't know. But in any event, she's named Tay. <laughs> she was supposed to sound like a teenage girl, and for anybody could chat with her. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... I, I'm, I'm reminded of Nigella Lawson, who in one of her cookbooks had a, a recipe for a Barbie cake, and there's an entire thing where you just basically put gobs of frosting on her breasts. And she wrote in the recipe, now there are grown men who would pay to do this. So really, the, the, the mind reels. Uh, here's this bot. Her name is Tay. She's meant to sound like a teenage girl. Anyone can chat with her on Twitter. People did. And she turned out to be quite a deal more impressionable than your average teenage girl or boy. And within hours was saying all sorts of hateful, racist things that she absorbed from Twitter users who were looking to push the envelope here. Right? So she she's questioning the Holocaust. She's uh, questioning... Uh, things like abortion and racism. Oh. I mean, it's just, it's not pretty. It's so not funny. It's after, not funny. We shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. It's not funny. It's it's alarming. And but she didn't even survive. How long did she, did she, I don't think she survived even 24 hours. They had to like... I don't think so. And, and I mean, entire, it took her entire less than dissertations will bad. be written on yeah. this. this To turn know. evil. God. Take it. So Microsoft <laughs> shut Tate down and apologized. But experienced bot makers uh, could have predicted this and think Microsoft should have known better. Uh, among the many things that, uh, that I've been reading about this online is a, an excellent essay by an interaction designer at IBM who works with Watson uh, called Caroline Sinders, who wrote that Tay, in her words, was an example of bad design. It sounds like um, um, Tay was like Watson, sort of meant to be kind of at once a demonstration of its inventor's mastery of you know, the capacity to simulate artificial intelligence and also be a uh, standard bearer for the brand. Bots, based on my current understanding of them, may be able to be repositories of information. What they can't do is be morally managed. They can't, they're not nuanced. They don't understand the intricacies of language and therefore, as many of these people wrote online, 
really cannot be called upon to demonstrate judgment. What separates humans from bots is our capacity for reason and morality. And so I've never made a bot, but the teen girl persona, I mean, just you're opening yourself up for just an unbelievable criticism and, and weirdness. And misogyny and everything else, yeah. Yeah, people's eagerness to undermine any corporate project that's purporting to be friendly and human is too tempting, actually. Part of the, the thing with her and part of, um, part of the thing that bots can do and, the, and that Tay was supposed to do, I think, was sort of learn and get smarter from these interactions, right? There, you know, people interacting with her would make her, you know, increase her vocabulary and make the conversation ever more nuanced. And instead, people more or less kept saying, you know, Tay, repeat after me, Hitler wasn't so bad and stuff like that, right? Right, exactly. And and again, you know, the idea of moral agency is not something you would ever expect, but I think it was an extremely ambitious and one might even say bizarrely optimistic experiment to assume that given Twitter trolls and, and snark and the pissy things people say on the internet, it was a foregone conclusion that this was going to be trouble. But if we step back from it for a moment, uh, when cars about 10 years ago first came out with uh, voice activated response things, I was once sitting, uh, I had just gotten a new car. I was sitting very early in the morning at the uh, bus stop with my children before they got on the bus. And they decided at that moment, about a quarter to seven in the morning, to test it. And I don't know what possessed them, but my son leaned over, pushed the voice button thing and said, pizza. And then my daughter leaned over and said, laundry. Well, okay, now 10 years later, here we are. People test the boundaries of Siri all the time. What did Microsoft think that they were going to accomplish? I don't know. And why is that always, why Why do you suppose Siri is a girl, Tay, is, or Siri is a woman's voice, Tay is supposed to be a teen girl persona, you know, in that movie, Her, which was great, if you ask me, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, uh, the beautiful voice of, um, shoot, what's her name? Uh, Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson, yeah, yeah. So often these voices are female. Um, you know, you're the mother of a teen girl yourself, Jessica. Is that, how, does that seem like weird to you? I think it's weird uh, in a gendered stereotype uh, subordinate way. The, the bigger question beyond the gender, which is, of course, a big conversation, is uh, the degree to which this is a design problem. And John Markoff, the longtime technology reporter for the New York Times, put it, I thought, very well. He said, and this is a quote, he said, we design these machines and we have the ability to design them as our masters or our partners or our slaves. And, and I think a great deal of the commentary in the wake of this Microsoft debacle has to do with this sort of misguided assumption that bots should represent some kind of anthropomorphized human quality. And so there's this sort of design by proxy, right? We think of bots, we think of service, we think of all of the things we make now that have technology-enabled, wearable technology, portable technology. Even some people are saying the next thing will be embedded technology. Algorithms that can become extensions of ourselves in terms of the services they provide, but not in terms of who we are and who they are. And that's where I think, to me, it always comes off the rails. But I also think there's something very specific. This was like a really uh, crazy, perfect storm combination of, you know, um, a big corporation you know, the, the, the social media platform with uh, the highest potential for inflammability, if that's the word for it, Twitter, and, um, you know, this helpless uh, teenage girl persona. People have used almost exactly this sort of uh, 
uh, technology to do relatively benign and control things. So like I think it's used, there are examples of it being used as a way of um, uh, delivering uh, psychotherapeutic exchanges actually. And you can imagine if you've ever spent a single session or even seen a single session on television with a uh, uh, psychotherapist, you know, um, you know, the, the kinds of responses that you get, you know, hmm, how did that make you feel? Right. It wasn't that. What, what didn't did MIT do, you know? have? A, MIT had a, an early bot that did just that, and it was funny. I mean, it was all based on that on on the semantics, exactly. Yeah, and I think actually, um, in uh, I'll have to check this, but I think in the UK there's um, there's a certain level of social services that are delivered like that, where kind of the basic sort of um, you know, tell me what your problem is, uh huh, mm -hmm, right? You know, that's all like kind of delivered mechanically, actually. And I think there's there's just something you know the this actually took on a little of the aspect of, you know, delirious crowdsourcing and just people piling on from all directions. And that just happens hourly on a platform like Twitter, you know, just to let's see if we can get some, some, some topic trending just if we all just go crazy on it. And it keeps happening over and over again during the election season, that's for sure. You, you know, the, the idea that crowdsourcing can go wrong is, is, I think, shouldn't surprise any of us. But where crowdsourcing enters into this human bodily territory is where I think it gets really uh, uncomfortable for people. There's this slippage between, you know, it's, I was always upset, um, disturbed by the notion in marketing speak where uh, viewership is referred to by eyeballs, right? This sort of disenfranchised body parts that, that we're all becoming cyborgs without really realizing it. Um, but I have to uh, just mention, I just want to mention for a moment, I saw a demonstration this week. Um, uh, Apple came to Yale and, and did a demonstration of a number of apps that turn this around. And I, never, I didn't know about these, but they're basically, if you're in research, um, you have a very hard time getting people to sign up for research studies. Right, so Apple is now encouraging researchers to use a series of apps. They come out of the notion of health kit. Uh, there's one for breast cancer. There's one for heart health. Basically, if you're interested in participating in a study, uh, somehow it goes beyond the HIPAA thing, and you can actually enter your health data into something that helps researchers at a much bigger scale use your data to help solve problems. That, to me, is the inversion of what this Tay problem is, right? So that is assuming that technology can help save lives. Let's not talk about embedding chips in our brains becoming cyborgs, but let's talk about actually pooling our resources to create support for scientists who want to help human beings, human sentient beings with like blood flow and, and you know, heart rates. Actual people uh, have medical um, problems that are in fact uh, dispelled because of the fact that we all willingly participated in studies that helped everybody. Yeah, no, exactly. So I think, um, again, crowdsourcing gets a bad name, partly because, um, you know, I think there's actually an opportunity or a temptation just to get mischievous with it. Did you hear about a um, Bodie McBoatface, for instance? Bodie McBoatface. Can you tell our listeners what that was? It's a perfect example. Yeah, it was a um, uh, an invitation to crowdsource the name of a uh, a new British ship, uh, and they were hoping for something like the Endeavour or the Shackleton, or something that sounded bold and exploratory and kind of I don't know like like rugged. And someone <laughs> just on I, I believe on Twitter just said, 
you know, I've got the name, it's Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> and then before you knew it, people just were so excited about Bodie McBoatface. I think there was also naming a bridge in uh, the Slovak Republic, um, and uh, the popular vote was to name it after action, American action star Chuck Norris. Uh, uh, again, it was by a, a wide margin, and I believe in that case the authorities had to uh, overrule the popular will and say, no, this... Uh, Slovakian Bridge shall not be named after Chuck Norris, although Chuck Norris probably make a better name for a rugged seagoing vessel than Bodie McBoatface. So, you know, maybe maybe the public should just generate names at random and then cooler heads should actually assign them to their proper places. You know? <laughs> uh, somewhere out there, there's something that deserves to be called Bodie McBoatface, if not this particular ship. And now a word from our sponsor. Stumptown Coffee Roasters are American craft coffee pioneers with living room cafes in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, and New York. In April, they'll be opening a new one in New Orleans. Stumptown has been sourcing, roasting, and keeping cups half full since 1999. Find out more and get fresh coffee delivered right to your doorstep at stumptowncoffee.com. Stumptown is great. There's one right around the corner from where I work, and it's a very different experience if you're just going to run in there and run out with a giant bucket of hot brown coffee. Um, it's not the place. They really make it with tender, loving care, and you really enjoy the time they put into it. So hooray for Stumptown. Um, hey, um, you know, speaking of the people voting on design. Uh, we've mentioned in a few previous episodes this contest to come up with a new flag for New Zealand, and the results are in. And uh, uh, there were, I think you and I both agreed there were some pretty nice, interesting designs that had been submitted to come up with a flag that did not incorporate the British Union Jack that seemed to be um, particularly suited to the place and spirit of the New Zealand people. And um, uh, there was a long process, uh, a referendum uh, that cost something like $17 million. Uh, and then, amazingly enough, the people of New Zealand decided uh, to stick with the old flag. You know, it raises questions of who has the final say, who says what is good or bad, what kind of authority does design convey, uh, on, on one level, it's such become such an important thing, one could actually say that design conveys enormous authority. On another level, the free-for-all, bake-off, 99 designs model says that anybody can do anything. And and, and so I think that there, there are sort of larger philosophical questions about the graphic representation of a country left in the hands of crowdsourcing optimists, realists, citizens. Uh, you know, what's the line, I guess is what I'm asking, what's the line between that kind of crowdsourcing and, and Bodie McBoatface. Right? <laughs> On some level, any of it can get out of hand. That's the big question, is how democratic is democratic? Interesting here was the fact that um, the crowdsourcing happened at both ends, basically. There could have been an alternate model by which they would have asked, say, the, quote, 10 best design firms in the world, unquote, to each design a proposal for this flag, and then let the people vote on all of them. My guess is this, the exact same thing would have happened, that 
people's natural tendency towards conservatism would have just taken hold and they sort of, you know, what's so bad about our flag and all these new ones look weird and unfamiliar and I don't like them. I, I may have been naive here, but having traveled in New Zealand while this thing was underway, I had a sense that this had really captured the imagination both of the design community who were taking it fairly seriously and with some respect and um, and the general public who were likewise kind of interested in the idea of kind of using this as a moment of national redefinition. And New Zealand is both a small enough country and a young enough country that that seemed actually possible. So in a way, I'm actually a little bit dismayed to see that they uh, uh, presented with the alternatives. They um, opted to uh, stay put. And, um, you know, God knows in my professional life, um, I've learned over and over again how you know, how difficult it is to get someone to, um, to cross an invisible bridge to go to an imaginary destination when where they are now just feels so solid beneath their feet, no matter how uncomfortable they are, no matter how ill-fitting or unsuitable the current reality is, at least it's the reality they know and they understand. And um, despite our abilities to sort of like prototype things to death. There's always someone in the room who just is really going to resist change. And uh, I think it's, it's extremely destabilizing when you are in the business of making visual things that have, uh, are by definition uh, out there for public consumption. And so if you take that premise and then you introduce the fact that we are living in a moment where the emphasis is on democracy, uh, certainly the sharing economy le levels the playing field. So anybody can put a design on 99designs. Anybody can call themselves a designer. Anybody can have their flag chosen or not chosen. Did you ever read the Daniel Borston book, uh, The Image? Yeah, 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 yeah. Borston wrote this book in 1962 in which he talked about something called a pseudo-event. Yeah, so prescient. Uh, basically that, that press conferences and presidential debates are manufactured just to be reported. And so the sort of the media commenting on the media is like design commenting on design, right? So this, the, he was interested in, in, in the idea of the celebrity as a person who's known for being well-known. Well, Anybody now can do that, right? That kind of tautology exists. You can be on Facebook. You can have more Facebook friends than anybody else just by, by plugging that, by threading that needle over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested in the intersection between that, you know, uh, kind of chest-beating uh, look-at-me personality, which is, I think, very, very hidden under this, this uh, understanding that we're all in it together and we all share and we all have Twitter feeds that are the same length. And then you get to this moment where anybody can submit a flag and anybody can win. It's, it's like the dream of the lottery. It's what some people used to call the American dream, the Horatio Alger dream, but it's not. On the other hand, though, in terms of um, from the world of technology, you sort of have, there's also something incredibly reductive about it, right? You've got the, the complexity of human emotion and the unknowable components that comprise you know, each of our unique characteristics as sentient human beings. And once, you know, people like Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson and lots of people kind of used words to kind of evoke all those different emotions and the different ways people could feel. And increasingly, it's not just 140 characters, but it's, you know, emojis. You know, it's just sort of like 
if you're happy, here is this thing that I will send you to show my happiness, you know, and, uh, you know, Facebook just introduced those as a way to uh, provide alternatives to simply liking something because sometimes you want to react to something and don't say, you know, my dog died, so you want to acknowledge that somehow. So now you can acknowledge that with like a sad face because I'm sad your dog died. Um, I mean, is that part of this whole syndrome? And what do you make of emojis at all? I use them all the time when I'm texting my children, my friends. Um, and I think it was great when Facebook uh, introduced uh, not the bigger emojis. I have actually had quite a question about those. Uh, but there's certain nuances that are welcome at a moment when we are all in a hurry, but we might actually want to just uh, you know slow down a little bit. The bigger question uh, for me is, is an emoji in the face of tragedy. In the wake of the Brussels attacks recently, Ann Perkins in The Guardian wrote this very um, compelling essay about how outpourings of grief on social media become kind of redundant and meaningless. Uh, and so there's this kind of knee-jerk reaction that the urge to solidarity to post are, you know, je suis Charlie, whatever, right? Completely fine. But that, and it's why, you know, we react because we're human and we do react. Fine. Fair enough. But her point is that at some point that genuine, if emotional gesture uh, can veer into something else altogether and becomes a kind of exhibitionism. So here, let me make this distinction. Uh, you know, you're alone in an airport. It's your birthday. 400 messages pop up from people. Many of them you don't even know. Uh, they read your book or something and they wish you happy birthday. You feel really loved. It's adorable and wonderful. And I love that face. I just had a birthday. So it was really nice. I, do not get me wrong. Happy, birth- happy birthday, Jessica. Thank you. I'm not having any more birthdays. I'm giving them back. No. <laughs> uh, but... But Ann Perkins' point is a really good one, that, you know, when it's a happy thing, sure, you know, babies being born. Who doesn't want to see pictures of babies and puppies on Facebook? Fine. The trouble is when you get into something that is horrific, Uh, you know, and the judgment that comes with what you post, right? So so I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I have a child applying to college. I think it is morally reprehensible when people post on Facebook where their kid got in because all I can think about is the kid who didn't get in. Mm. Now, I don't know where my child is going. I just don't think you should do that. I, you know, I have a friend who lost a child a few years ago. I'm very conscious of not posting things about my children. I just, you just have to think. You have to think. The bot can't think. You can think. And her point, Ann Perkins' point, is that we feel good about ourselves when we post in the aftermath of a tragedy something that shows our solidarity with the victim's of that tragedy. So the emoji, to come back to your question of the emoji, I think that we can't assume that the bot can do it all. We can't assume that the emoji can do it all. But the great thing is, is that human beings can do more than either of those things. And that's what we tend to lose sight of. And I got reminded of that um, just the other day. I was, um, I spent a day going to museums and I was um, observing, sort of complaining, but really observing. The expected condition now, if you go to anywhere, but particularly to a museum, if it allows photography, people's way of interacting with the art they're seeing is raising their smartphones or handheld devices and taking pictures of those things. And it's, it's, it's really easy to do that and really tempting to do that. And I, I think it's a way, again, it's a way of people using technology um, to substitute for what it what once was, um, you know, um, a moment of actual, you know, 
you know, live communion with a, a work of art, let's say, just as I think, uh, you know, the, you know, the quick response on uh, social media, whether it's an emoji or not, is a way of substituting for a more personal, nuanced, deeply felt response. And uh, I, was saying, I, was, I was kind of observing this, and uh, uh, my friend said that she had just been at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and they, according to her, they are now forbidding photography throughout the museum, and instead they're giving everyone who wants it uh, free paper and pencils so they can make notes on and draw the art that inspires them. And I just think that's so Oh, that's fantastic. so wonderful. No, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, it's, it's flipping the whole thing around and inviting people to kind of enter into the world of art on terms that only art can, uh, can provide. And I think more of that would just be wonderful. And I think if emojis have a future, they have to have a future that lies in that direction. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's program, including Anne Perkins' piece in The Guardian on Twitter at the Age of Grief. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not tuning in already, please listen to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Thanks to Stumptown Coffee for sponsoring this episode of the Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. <laughs>